Morning, everyone. Good morning. You know, we're starting a new series today called Burning Questions. And I don't know if maybe you have a burning question inside of you, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be tackling some uncomfortable topics that maybe come up in your conversations or maybe you actively try to avoid in your conversations, but if you've got a question that you just really want addressed, you can come talk to me, and maybe it's already part of our series, or maybe we'll add into it. But to get really started in the series, to really kind of answer these questions, the, the first question that we got to tackle is, well, can I really trust the Bible? You know, how do I believe it? How do I know that it's God's word. So that's kind of today's question. But then moving forward, we're going to be tackling some other hard questions like, can I lose my salvation? Does purgatory exist? Can I pray to saints or people who are in heaven to get things or to have things accomplished? Um, what about the LGBTQ community? What about gambling and smoking and marijuana and drinking? Uh, what about the roles of men and women inside the church and inside the home? So those are some examples of some difficult subjects coming our way. And each week I'm going to put out a video kind of talking about what's coming up next week so that you'll get a little bit of a heads up and you can share it with somebody who might be struggling with that issue. Um, But please know that this has been heavy on my heart for a long time and that we are trying to do this with grace and love and with biblical truth And that whatever I'm trying to share to you is the words and the truth of Scripture. And that's why we got to start here this week. Because for you to trust all these following weeks, I really need you to understand that you can trust the Bible as the infallible or inerrant Word of God. Okay, It is the Word of God. It has no errors in it. And God uniquely, divinely protects His Word. So I'm going to go through some some not-scripture parts of why you can trust the Bible. And almost all of this is quite common. So if you search this question, like, can I trust the Bible, or why should I trust the Bible, you're going to get this list. Okay, so this isn't Nathan's list. I borrowed it from like 15 sites, and I took all the things that I liked, and I compiled it for you. But as you research this, man... I could have spent a whole Sunday on each of these points. So this is just a whirlwind tour, and I've got a lot to share with you this morning. So with all that being said, let me start off right with a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to be here as a church family, God. Thank you for the sun and the shining brightness. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you and to be together, Lord. I pray that you speak through me this morning. Help help us to understand that your word is divinely protected by you. And it's your words that you breathed out and you carried along, God. Please just make that obvious to us today. It's in your holy and most precious name we pray. And everyone said, amen. So can I trust the Bible? Anyone ever ask this question? Man, I asked this question a bunch when I was younger. I went through all of the religious books in the world, and I ended up with the conclusion, yeah, I trust the Bible far more than any of these other religious books. And we're going to kind of go through the points of why that is. So the Bible has something called harmony. That's how it's referred to a lot, the harmony of the books of the Bible, or its internal consistency. And here's just some facts about the Bible. And if any of you want a copy of my PowerPoint, I will happily print it out for you because there's going to be a lot of information this morning. 
The Bible is a collection of 66 different books or documents. It was written by over 40 authors. Many of the Bible's authors came from different backgrounds, such as Peter being a fisherman, Paul was a scholar, Daniel a prime minister, Asaph a musician, Matthew a tax collector, David a shepherd, then a king, Luke a historian, and a medical doctor. Those are all different professions, and I don't know if you've hung out with people in different professions, but they talk different And if you asked all of them to write a book about how they should live their life, it would be different. Yet somehow, across all those professions and across all that time and across all those languages, there's a consistent harmony because it all talks about the same goodness of God and it all points to Jesus Christ. The Bible was written over a great period of time. So it's not like one person sat down during one weekend and wrote the Bible. No, God ordained it throughout all of time. At least 1,500 plus years. Some other places say 1,600. A long time. Over a 1,000 years, God was working through these authors. Many of them didn't know each other and would never meet each other. Okay, Think about someone who wrote in the Old Testament and then over 400 years of silence before the New Testament begins to be written. They were hundreds of miles away geographically because it was written over three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was also written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And through all of that, everything points to Jesus Christ. There's no conflict. Scripture doesn't go against itself in any way. As a matter of fact, other religious books have that issue. They conflict with each other. But when we read the Bible and we compare one book against another, all it does is further prove or confirm Scripture. That's just some of the reasons. Okay, It has an internal consistency, but maybe that's not enough. So we have manuscript evidence. Okay, Some of you maybe have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but above that, I love the fact that we can take Just broken manuscripts from the early church, from preachers in the early church, and we can recompile the entire New Testament just with quotes from sermons from the early church because they were all on the same page. They all agreed these are the divine words of God. And then later when there's these church councils kind of bringing together the word of God, all they do is confirm. Okay, all people agree these books are the word of God. I could spend a whole Sunday on just the manuscript evidence. It's a beautiful thing to Google and see the pictures and go to a museum Past that, you have archaeological evidence. Let's just take the example of the flood. The flood is worldwide agreed on across every religion and outside of religion. So you have the archaeological evidence. You also have point after point of the Bible being confirmed through archaeological evidence. So each time there's a new discovery... Christians get to do a bunch of high fives because it continues to prove the Bible true. We haven't had it the other way. There's not some archaeological evidence that's in conflict. As a matter of fact, each time it just further proves the word of God. Then you have extra biblical writings. These are historical documents outside of Scripture that confirm what Scripture says. So things like Pontius Pilate and the crucifixion, that is 
outside of the Bible backed up historical evidence, extra biblical writings. In those extra biblical writings, I've got a whole list coming up before I get there. The transforming power of the Bible. Now, none of these things by themselves maybe be enough for you, but it's the compilation of everything that helps us to trust that this is God's word. So what do I mean when I say the transforming power of the Bible? Well, I mean that it transforms lives. And when we look at how it has impacted people and how it has changed their lives, we can see God's hand in it. We don't see that in other religions. Oftentimes it lacks that transforming power and people are still seeking a truth from the scriptures. Let's hop back to that point of the extra biblical writings and add this thought that it's a truth people are willing to die for. So yes, you know, maybe it was all made up. But oftentimes when people make things up, it's for their personal gain or for a financial gain. Now, if I made that all up for my personal gain or my financial gain, would I be willing to die for it? Or would I be like, whoa, hang on, guys, I made it up. Like, don't kill me. And it wasn't just one person. Now, I'll have to squint, and maybe you'll have to squint, but these are found in the extra-biblical writings except two of them. So Matthew, slain by an axe in Ethiopia. Mark, died in Alexandria, cruelly dragged through the streets. Luke, hung to death in Greece. John was tortured and banished. James was beheaded. James the Less was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned. Philip was hung from a pillar and then stoned. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to the cross and left to die. Jude was shot to death with the arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death. And Paul, after torture and in Imprisonment was beheaded in Rome, and Thomas was run through with a spear, and Peter was crucified. All of those, but the two with the scripture, are found from outside of the Bible historical evidence. So you have all these writings of the historical evidence of these people and their truths. And they were willing to die for it. That helps give scripture validity, at least to me. But then further from that, the truth of scripture and its characters are transparent and vulnerable. What do I mean by that? Over and over, the Bible and biblical writers tell us about the failures, the weaknesses, and the sins of the people of our faith. So the fathers of our faith, Abraham and Moses, the Bible's open and transparent about their mistakes, about their sinfulness. Even their own people, the Israelites, they're honest about their sinfulness and their mistakes. And even themselves, the writers of the book, divinely inspired by God, share their weakness and their sinfulness and their mistakes. This does not happen in other religious writings. If I'm trying to convince you that I am some divine prophet... Why would I include my sinfulness or my mistakes? How would that help people believe in what I'm saying? So they take that stuff out. No, they, they, he's, he's, he's perfect. No, that's, that's not what I see through Scripture. I see a bunch of imperfect humans being perfectly worked through by God. 
And God divinely protects his word as he's working through those imperfect humans. So I get more trust in the Bible because of this fact that it's truthful and transparent and vulnerable. So all of that together, right, it's internal consistency or harmony the archaeological evidence, the extra-biblical evidence, the manuscript evidence, the transforming power of Scripture, all of it together helps me to trust the Word of God as the divine, inspired Word of God. But that's not quite enough for me. I want a little bit more. So the Bible has this next beautiful part that's arguably the most important. We talked about harmony and how everything points to Christ. Well, you have all these fulfilled prophecies. So over 300 references to the Messiah, that he'd be a descendant of Abraham, born of the tribe of Judah, born in the lineage of David, born in Bethlehem, born to a virgin, Come while the temple was still standing, open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, cause the lame to walk, be despised and rejected by his own people. The scriptures foretold the precise time in history he would die and how he would die and that he would raise from the dead. So if you took just those eight prophecies, not the 300, but just those Eight, and you ask some math person, which I don't understand, okay? I'm not a math person. I, like, shake my head and cry sometimes. You ask a math person to work out the probability of that occurring, okay? One in 100 quadrillion. I don't know that number. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind of like when you say a million versus a billion, and I'm like, yeah, there are a lot. But to get a billion dollars takes like 17 years of a million dollars a day or whatever. And a million dollars would take much less time. I right, See, I'm, I don't even understand it. I don't, I don't picture that large of numbers. So I had to ask, like, how many zeros is that? What does that mean? What is that number? Like, if I put a one and then a whole bunch of zeros, how do I get to whatever number you're saying? That's 2,000 zeros. I like can't even picture the number, right? Like I can't, like if I lined out the whole stage with zeros, we don't get to 2,000. So what? All of them are fulfilled by Christ. How do I have confidence in his word because somehow over three continents and three different language with over 40 authors every prophecy is fulfilled that's how i can trust the bible as the word of god got a couple more things to tackle like bible translations but before i get there i love this verse 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Therefore, I never stop thanking God that when you received his message, you didn't think of it as mere human ideas. You accepted it as what we said it was, the very word of God. And I love that line. I like almost shout it, which of course it is. So it's the very word of God that you've accepted and you understand, of course, it's the word of God. And this word continues to work in you who believe. That's going back to the transforming power of scripture. It's the very word of God and it's at work and it's going to continue to work in you. Okay, Pastor Nathan, I now trust the Bible a little bit more. But now I've got another question. There's a lot of versions out there. How do I trust which version to read? You know, should I read the NIV or the ESV or the King James or the New King James or the Holman Christian? There's all sorts of them, guys. There's no shortage 
of Bible translations. So I've got this handy chart for us. There's a couple of different strategies when translating the Bible. One is word for word. Okay, so we take one of the original languages and we go word for word and we try to translate the exact word best we can. Even if in English that sentence isn't as readable, we try hard to make it word for word. Okay, those translations are the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the ESV, King James, which a lot of you love, and the New King James. Then you go to meaning for meaning. So you try to look at the, the meaning of the paragraph or of the chapter, and you try to translate the meaning. Then you go to thought for thought. So here's this thought, maybe a sentence or a couple of sentences, and I'm going to translate that the best that I can into whatever language that I'm in. And the Bible has been translated into more than a hundred different languages. So in that category, right, thought for thought, you have the NIV, which probably many of us use in here. And then you have the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is what I most commonly put on the screen. So most of the time when you see the version that I'm reading from, it is the NLT. It's a thought-for-thought translation that is in today's language. That's why I like to read it. And then there's another category that I don't particularly like. But that's okay, because it's helpful to some people. And that's a direct paraphrase or a retelling. That's when they read the scripture, and then they try to paraphrase it or retell it into a very common, understandable way. An example of that would be the Message Bible. Now, I don't think that's a good translation, but I do think it's an amazing place to start to get you to read the Bible, and if you're not reading the Bible, that's way better than not reading the Bible. And then maybe you can look at that and compare it to another translation, and you can see the truth of God's Scripture. So I'm going to show you a couple of verses in different translations, just so you can kind of get a feel for the difference. And then I've got one more chart for us. So the verse that I chose to look at is arguably the most important verse for defending Scripture. And that's 2 Timothy 3.16. You should be able to remember it because you know John 3.16. So it's a 3.16, locking in your head. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is the NLT, which is the version Nathan chooses most of the time. Guess what? I don't like the way this verse is translated this time. So even though I use this version often, often I pull up BibleGateway.com, which is this amazing resource. I go to NLT, and then they've got this beautiful button called Add Parallel. And I click that, and I read it in a different translation. And then I click it again, and I read it in a different translation. So that's what we're going to do this morning. First is NLT. All Scripture is inspired by God. Okay, all scripture is inspired by God. It is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. One of the things that the NLT does is he tries to use gender-neutral language when referring to you or the reader. So it changes it to his people. But let's look at 
another translation, the NIV. Maybe that's the translation you use. All Scripture is God-breathed. I love it so much better than inspired. Why? Because in creation, when God was making you, he breathed into us nothing else. Nothing else but humans and his word did God breathe into. So all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That sounded different, but it's all the same, right? You can see how it's the same information using different words in our common language. Then we go to something you might be more familiar with, the King James Version. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. King James uses some older language and is set up in a poetic structure. So it tries to keep the reader line by line, kind of like poetry. But it is older language that you might not always be familiar with. So sometimes people update themselves to a different translation, maybe the New King James, the NIV, or this last one we're going to look at, the ESV, the English Standard Version. This is the last one I'm going to read. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There's a good example of the ESV and the King James being word-for-word translation. So right there, the man of God. But then the NLT is trying to use gender-friendly language so that his people, right? God uses it to prepare his people. Now, is that some kind of air? His people versus the man of God? I think it's the manner in which we use our language. You are God's person, and he will use his word to equip you. Whether you are male or female, he will use it. So what translation should I use? Which one? You know, there's so many of them. Which translation should I use? Well, here's this helpful chart. And this is honestly... The biggest reason for me. So why do I use the NLT most commonly? Because it is at a sixth grade reading level. It is words that almost everyone know and understand and use. And the New Testament was written in this word called Koine Greek which means the language of the people. So the version of the Bible that you should be reading is the language of the people that you are. And if that's how you talk, then that's the version of the Bible you should be reading because it's what you understand and comprehend and can memorize and share. Now, it's not to say... Anything about reading levels, that's just where I'm at. It's what helps me understand the scriptures the most. The New King James and the NIV and the ESV are all higher grade levels. You go up to the King James, that is a 12th grade or college 
reading level. Guys, in America, this is the chart for reading level. People are not getting higher reading levels. As a matter of fact, across all of our education, the numbers are going down. So it is difficult to look at you and say, hey, man, I, I really think you should be in the New King James or the ESV, even though you don't know those words. That does not make sense to me because you should be able to understand what you're reading. And then you should be able to take that translation and compare it to another translation, and it should prove itself. It should be free from errors. Yeah, it might sound a little different, but the idea and the message has complete harmony. Just like earlier when we were talking about the harmony of scriptures. Now this further helps me believe that the Bible is truly the inspired God-breathed words of God. Because other religions don't want you to translate their book. And as a matter of fact, in some it is forbade for you to translate it into a different language. It just sounds fishy to me. It just does. Man, I should be able to read my Bible in English and Spanish and Mandarin and Japanese and every single version should agree with it. And if it doesn't agree with it, then I can look at that and be like, hey, uh, 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 uh. nope, what did you do? Did you add it? Did you change it? Why is it different? Because this does not have harmony. So all of the translations of the Bible further prove that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And I want you to use the translation that you're going to read. So if it's the NIRV for you, which is the New International Reader's Version, which is the NIV's Children's Bible, which is at a third grade reading level, then read it. Because it's so much more valuable than nothing at all. And if you're looking at the NLT and you're like, you know, I would rather see the word-for-word translation because this this paragraph that I'm reading, I'm getting a little stumped on, then go to Bible Gateway or go to the store and get a new Bible and look at them both and read both because all it will do is further confirm God's word. It will not be in conflict, it will be in harmony, and it will help you further understand God's word. Guys, my favorites, right? Now we're just talking about Nathan. This is just me, okay? Just Nathan. My personal reading, I love the NLT. It's how I talk. It's how I sound. I'm a little dyslexic, so it like keeps me on track. When I get stumped, I usually go to the ESV because it's the Bible I used in college I've memorized verses in it. It's a word-for-word translation that's slightly more updated than the New King James or the King James Version. But above both of those, I like something called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Because in that Bible, they do something that most other translations don't do, like the New Living Translation and the NIV. They don't do this, and it bothers me. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they capitalize the personal pronouns of God, which in English is how you should do it, because that's how we speak and that's how we read sentences. So the personal pronouns of God should be capitalized. And if it bugs me enough, sometimes I go into that verse and I capitalize it. But in word-for-word translations... They don't capitalize the personal pronouns of God. 
Because in the original language, it would not have been capitalized. But I'm not speaking the original language. I'm speaking Koine English. So I really want it capitalized. Now, is the personal pronoun of God being capitalized enough of a difference to be an heir in Scripture? No. That's a personal preference. And you can change it as you're reading it. So hopefully that kind of helps you. I know that was a lot of non-scripture reasons. And you know me, I really want at least half of what I'm saying to be the Bible. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some verses because the inspired word of God should prove itself and it should let you know that it is the word of God. So where are the verses that help me know that that is true? Starting off in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the disciples For we were not making up clever stories. The Bible is not made up clever stories. When we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received, see that, that he should be capitalized in Nathan's opinion. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him. So this is Christ's baptism when the heavens open and the dove descends and you hear this voice, the majestic glory of God. This is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven. And we were with him on the holy mountain. And because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. So you must pay close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. And above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture has ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. Okay, so the prophets arguably didn't understand what they were saying. Because some of it was a prophecy to be fulfilled thousands of years forward. And it was not from their own initiative. So they didn't sit down one day and decide to write these holy words. No, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. And they spoke from God. Some translations... Say, no, these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, which one's better? Well, God's going to move you. And he might need to carry you or push you or shove you, but that's what was happening. So the prophets were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. That gives me confidence in what the prophets say. Then we move over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, remember the Bible's written over 1600 plus years. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. 
So God spoke through the prophets and then he spoke through his son Jesus and that reminds us of the internal consistency of the Bible because it all points to Jesus. And we see this in John 14. Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say and my Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey me and remember my words are not my own. This is Jesus speaking, right? Look at the top. Jesus replied, remember my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. So Christ himself humbles himself, says, guys, I'm not some great prophet. These are not my words. These are the words of the Father, and I am telling you what he told me to tell you. So he submits to the Father, right? All scripture is God-breathed, is God-inspired. What I'm telling you is from the Father, not from anyone else. Then we slide over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish the purpose, right? You remember the 2,000 zeros that Christ fulfilled? I came to accomplish their purpose and I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. When you go back to the original language, there's these funny words there called jot and tittle. And in college, I was like, what? What do you mean? Those are like the markers Above the characters. Kind of like how we have an, a dot for an I or the cross for a T. So when it says not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear. It's talking about the dot above an I. And the cross for a T. That's how divinely God protects His word. So if you ignore the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So until heaven and earth disappear, God will divinely protect his word. John 17, 7 Make them holy by your truth. I hope anytime you hear that truth, you think of Pontius Pilate standing on the stage screaming at Jesus, what is the truth? And then you relate it back to John, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Teach them your Word, which is truth. So God's Word is truth. And all of God's word points to Jesus Christ, which is truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. The instructions of the Lord are perfect. They're reviving for the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise The simple, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. God's word is perfect, trustworthy, right, and clear. Isaiah 40, verse 8, even though the grass withers, And the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. 
The word of our God stands forever. Then we get this reminder, the heaven and the earth, right? Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will disappear, right? Christ will return. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But my words, God's words, will never disappear, God's words are divinely protected, more so than heaven and earth, because they will both disappear, but God's words will never disappear. Psalm 119, verse 89, your eternal word, I like that eternal, right? No beginning, no end. God's word existed before he created anything and will exist long after everything. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. It is protected and outside of reach. Then we see Proverbs 30. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to all who come to him for protection. Do not add to his words, or he may rebuke you and expose you as a liar. Now, I want to take a second and kind of hone in on that thought, because sinful humans are going to try hard to manipulate God's word. And it happens. They might try to add a book to the scriptures. They might try to add their own thoughts to the scriptures. They might try to remove things from the scriptures. Do not add or take away from his words. He may rebuke you and expose you as a liar. Okay, How would he do that? How's God going to rebuke those people who take his word out of context or mistranslated or do something with it? How is he going to rebuke them and expose them as a liar with his word? So you guys have seen this verse often. It's found in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. So not only is God's word divinely protected, but it is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our inner thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one whom we are accountable Okay, so somebody tells me something. It's the words of God. Well, then it should be in harmony with God's word. I should be able to search the scriptures, and the scriptures should be able to confirm what you're saying. And if it doesn't, if it's not in harmony, then you go, it's junk. It's something to be extremely cautious over. And this has been happening for always. For always, sinful people are trying to manipulate you for personal gain. So how can I trust the word of God as the divine word of God? Because it will protect me from those people's manipulation if I'm willing to dig into it and investigate it and compare it against whatever they're saying. Now, if I'm not in the Word of God, how can I defend it? How can I know if what they're saying is true? How can I know if they're adding to the Scriptures without being in the Scriptures to confirm it or to prove against it. And that's kind of today's life lesson for my thought of the scriptures. Okay, so if you're going to take away anything this morning, take away this fact. God's word proves true. 
It says it right there in Proverbs 30. God's word proves true. There's a couple meanings behind that. One, all of the prophecies of the Lord prove true. All of the archaeological evidence proves true. All of the manuscripts prove true. All of the translations prove true. And if I compare it against itself, it confirms its harmony. It confirms its truth. So the Word of God is alive, active, and powerful. It's divinely protected, and God will use it to prove itself. And it will be proven true. As we're beginning to wrap up this morning, I know that was a lot of information. I just have two last thoughts. One is, Jesus himself uses the word of God and tells you it's more important than anything else. So this is found in Matthew chapter 4. It's when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Hopefully you're all very familiar with this story. But Jesus told him, No. The Scriptures say... So Jesus quotes the divine, inspired, God-worth, protected and alive words of his Father. People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How do I believe that this is God's word? Because it transforms and sustains lives. It gets me through all the heartache, and I need it more than I need bread. Now, I try to, I try to live that out. I try really hard to, to care about reading God's Word more than I care about eating today. But it's a great reminder, okay, Christ himself says, no, what you need above food, what you need above everything else is the inspired word of God out of the mouth of God. That's why I like the translation, 2 Timothy 3.16, that says, God breathed, because it's breathed from the mouth of God, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then just kind of wrapping it up with this thought, John chapter 5 You, or the world, search religious scripture. So everyone is kind of searching for this answer, because we all have this God-sized hole in our hearts. So you search the scriptures because you think and you kind of understand that they will give you eternal life. But... The scriptures point to me. And that should be a capital M right there so that you know I'm not talking about me. That's Jesus. So the scriptures point to Jesus, right? Think back to the internal harmony of God's word. Everything points to Jesus Christ. So all of scripture, all points to Jesus. Yet You refuse to come to me and receive this life. Okay, well, how come there's all these other religions? How come there's these other scriptures and other holy books? It's because they're chasing eternal life and they're taking Christ out of it. They see the divine need for these holy truths, but they eliminate that everything points to Jesus and they refuse to come to him. 
Are, are you sitting here this morning battling with whether or not you believe in the Bible and its truth and that it's inspired by God because you refuse to acknowledge that it all points to Jesus? You want eternal life without a relationship with Jesus. It's where a lot of other religions are. They want the blessing of eternity without Jesus. But all of Scripture all points to Jesus. So as I'm kind of wrapping up here, I just want to kind of let that settle on your heart. You know, do I not believe in God's word because I don't want Christ? Do I not believe that it's God's word because I don't have Christ in my heart giving me the Holy Spirit, helping reveal these spiritual truths to me? Because you need the Holy Spirit to understand God's word. It will help reveal itself to you. And if you try to take Christ out of it, you will not have anything revealed to you. So if you want to understand God's word, God's inspired, protected, alive, and active word, then you have to come to this relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is simple. It's saying, God, I believe in you. I trust you. I accept you into my heart as my Lord and my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sins and that you rose again three days later and you ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, preparing a place for me. That's the truth found in God's word. For you to live out. God, I accept you into my heart. Help reveal the mystery of your scriptures to me so that I can better understand you. Pray that prayer this morning. Open up your heart and ask Christ into it. But maybe you're here and you already have Christ in your heart. I want to have this time of remembrance and reminder. So we're going to take communion together, and if you need one, just go ahead and raise your hand, but hopefully you got one as we walked in this morning. This is the truth, right? The truth is Jesus Christ, and the work of Jesus Christ came to completion when he died on the cross and rose again. And because of that truth, I can have a relationship with God. So once you ask Jesus into your heart and you're living under this truth that he died for you and he made you clean with his blood, then when you come together as a family of believers, you should be reminded. You should be reminded of the truth of God's word. We should be reminded of his work on the cross and his resurrection so that's what we're doing in this moment. We're remembering the truth, the truth of all Scripture that all points to Jesus and the fact that he came here to die for you, to wash away your sins, to make you holy and complete and blameless. So I borrow the words of Paul, and I love that he borrows the words from the Lord himself, and the Lord himself received the words from his Father, and they're not his words, they're the words of his Father that he brought to us. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. He broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, or the original covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. 
Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the truth of your word. God, we're so thankful that your word proves true. No matter what translation I'm reading, it's going to guide me to you. No matter what somebody tries to add or take away, God, you will prove it true. God, I can use your divine, inspired, protected, alive, and active word to build my relationship with you so that I can look more like you, God. Help me to remember your work and your words and to live like you have called us to live, God. It's in your holy and most precious name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.